today. As such, we will continue in the Gospel of John in chapter 10. And for those who've returned and missed last week's sermon, just to give you uh, catching up to speed, we close on the parable that is the Good Shepherd. And so with verses 11 through 18, Pastor Jason took the initiative to show, and when I was last here, that comparison between Christ being the door to the sheep and he provided the context in which Christ is indeed the good shepherd. But all of which, it was very conclusive. It was very comprehensive because he was able, and it's very consistent um, with various commentators, especially in the Reformed faith, to see the aspect of the Old Testament speak on which Christ brings out this parable in which he was to do a fulfillment. Now, I say all this because the fulfillment is very important to which we're going to see when we come and arrive now at verse 19. That, I will tell you now, is my 30-second commercial. So of which, if you have your Bibles, though the verses that we are approaching today may not be exhaustive as we've had in the past, We've only be, we'll be looking at three particular verses in regards really one that has a summation here. But it is something that is important as we now will look towards the end of the chapter. I cannot stress enough. Christ came to do work while he was here. But if he does not do this work, our faith is in vain. So how does verse 19 to 22 applies in this? Let us take a look now. A division occurred again amongst the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? By verse 21, others were saying, these are not the sayings of one who's demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Let's let our Lord, our God, in prayer. Father, we do thank you on this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, and we are mindful of the fact that we're able body of our faculties to be here on this day to give glory to your Son, Jesus Christ. So in this, in taking the word that's being preached, be with thy servant as he teach and feed your sheep and be with them and have a childlike love and a willing mind to see and know that you're still continually with them. Of which you have shown through your word, indeed, the work your son was to partake while he was on earth. Then, Lord, with humble hearts, let us not shut our eyes, nor let us hold our hearts with hardened intakes and intentions, but understand and see that indeed, when your Lord and our Lord came on this earth, he walked with a purpose and to fulfill it. All in all, to give glory to you. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, and just to make sure I have my timer here, <clears throat> it seems like a lot <clears throat> that could come from some, such a short verse. And the reason why I say that is because 
individuals like to find schisms in the scripture. They will posited certain positions and propositions that the scripture will give in context to its position when it comes to harmony and unity amongst Christians. Now, I would say this in a practical sense. In our modern depiction of our Lord, just by example, some would like to take to pious imagery to bestow or have an idea of what he will look like. So, given your residence in the world, some will take towards going to the old cathedrals, whether you're in France and you'll look to the church that is in St. Nectary, whether you're in uh, Venice and you're of the Byzantine sect and you'll look at some of the mosaics, or you're at the Vatican and you either take a look up onto the 16th chapel or look at some of the other mosaics that provides the Renaissance image of Caesar Borgia. Everybody's looking to have some sort of depiction of what the Christ might look like. Given our own building, you can look at the walls and see their tent. Nonetheless, all of it is showing whether you are of some sort of ethnicity. You can go to the computer, given where we are in this day and age and when time you've been listening to it. And if you are a certain extent, you would just type in your ethnicity, type in Jesus, and you look for an image, and he looks like you. They try to take to Hebrews 2.17. He will be made in all things like his brethren. And such, their attempt is to show he's like us. He's like us. But what's precluded from this is that there is no harmony. There's no consistent image. They can't find it. So, in the eyes of the humanists, they see discord and they see division. If this isn't enough, even fighting over the image of Jesus Christ, that's a minute point. Let's look at all the denominations. Oh, and there is plenty. Given the Catholic Church, they have six divisions of rituals. And again, I take it to where you are and where you reside in the world, especially if you are in the land of the Macedonias, either you under the Greek, Russian, Romanian, Ukrainian, Albanian churches, just to name a few. If you are of Syrian heritage, there is an Eastern and Western ritual. I didn't even know this until I was researching this. If you are of the African descent, you will look to the Alexandria churches, especially in Ethiopia. Look at the division. And then you have the Latin ritual. All you got to do is go to Italy and the Vatican, and you will find your Roman sect. All this, I still haven't even touched the Protestant churches of which there's 9,000 in count, and I lost track after 9,000. The division, the division, the division, the division. It's all what the humanists and the antinomian Christians claim. So, what do they make then? Why does the master, why does the scripture say that Jesus is supposed to be the prince of peace? Was he lying? 
but the scriptures of the prophets not telling the truth. <laughs> In fact, he even speaks from his own mouth what is supposed to transpire. And you might be wondering, where would our Lord take this adage? If you have your Bibles, and you might want to take note, I bring you to Micah 7.6. In Micah 7.6, the prophet speaks, For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Interesting. The prophet was speaking such a thing, especially given his time and where he is coming from. But this adage in discord is what our Messiah is bringing up to the front. Now, if you want to understand in this perspective, there is two adages to this. There is Matthew 10, 34 to 35, and I will be reading from Luke 12 and beginning at verse 51. And he reads, do you suppose I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members is in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Was it as if the old prophet Micah was trying to prophesy as to what the Messiah was going to do. There's some aspect to that, but that wasn't so much the case. The real caveat here is that the division that our master intends to create is not by accident. It is not something that came and was not meant to take place. But that does not mean he is not the Prince of Peace. It's because it's like we brought with chapter 10 in the parable. The sheep knows his voice. And when he speaks, the sheep can spiritually discern his voice and the truth. Now, it's funny I speak about the sheep being able to hear and be able to know his voice. Because as we've seen, as we've come now to chapter 10, I'm going to take you down memory lane. And as our Lord speaks, and there's a reputation that's provided by him. Note what has transpired amongst the people. I bring your attention first to John 7 by verses 11 through 12. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and they were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Further down, by verses 30 to 31 in the same chapter of John 7. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And by verse 31, but many of the crowd believed in him. So they were saying, when the Christ come, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has? Will he? Huh. How about verses 40 through 44 in John 7? Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Mm. Still others, even others, were saying, surely 
the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture has said that the Christ comes from descendants of David and from Bethlehem in the village where David was? By verse 43, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some wanted to seize him, but his hour had not yet come. Even as we are approaching, coming to verse number of chapter number 10, we saw early in chapter number 9, by verse 16, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Again, there was division among them. So now all of a sudden, we're looking at it in the Christ at every turn, at every sermon, is causing division. All of a sudden, people are looking at it and saying, where is the Prince of Peace? In fact, if you're there in that day and age and you hear Jesus trying to talk and say that he's the Messiah, then all of a sudden you notice a bunch of people get upset with him. I can understand why you would be concerned and yet not believe. He's supposed to be here to bring peace. Yet he all he does is bring discord. How is that so? In fact, he even stated in Luke 12, he's going to divide families. How about we look at chapter 9, at verses 18 to 23, a little bit closer. Then the Jews did not believe it of him, the blind man, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now says he sees? His parents had answered and said, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he's of age, and he will speak for himself. But no, as the evangelist states by verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed, if anyone confessed him to be the Christ. He will be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, their parents said, he is of age, ask him. I don't see a schism. I see the Messiah indicating because of his very words, his sheep know his voice. Now, albeit, if we're looking a little closely, it's consistent. It's consistent. Because see, by verse 19, as we arrived in chapter 10, there's a vision that occurred again because of his words. And like I stated before, with the parable that Jason had brought up when we were going through the Good Shepherd, and show the connectivity in which it came from Ezekiel 34. I want to reiterate and bring more close to your attention verses 17 through 22. As for my flock, thus says the Lord, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your good pastures? 
or that you should drink of the clear waters that you must put the fowl with the rest of your feet? By verse 19, as for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you, your feet, had fouled. And by verse 20, thus says the Lord to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you push aside with your shoulders and thrust at all the weak with your horns, horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be prey and I will judge between one sheep and another. Interesting at point here that what the prophet was speaking of in the Old Testament, the Christ is coming to state as he speaks with the parable of the good shepherd. But again, I note to you here, division. This is almost seditious. And you kind of hear this. You're, you're just wondering, how is the Messiah so divisive? We've been brought to know he was the Lord of peace, the Prince of peace. How can now he claim that he is God? In fact, it could even be somewhat empathetic with the Jews because they're always taught in their world that they have always had discord and div division and you were put into captivity. Now you're... Messiah has come and he's here to provide you peace. But as the Messiah speaks, almost almost as every turn, he speaks in discord. So how does the two claims come together? The fulfillment. The fact that he has to come here and fulfill his office is why he speaks is the way he speaks. Ha! <laughs> It's actually a very simple answer. So I'm going to bring it back full circle. Note here by chapter 9. And we've said this almost ad nauseum, but listen how I'm going to answer this and bring it all to its harmony. First, in verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came in this world, so that those, for all those who said they do not, ooh, I'm sorry, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. I'm going to show you I must fulfill the work so that those who are of mine will live, and those who aren't of mine are going to get their just recompense. What individual can do that but the Messiah? In order to be the Messiah, he has to fulfill his office. And there's three particular facets that we know of. He is the priest, he is the prophet, and he is the king. And of this division that he has created, he is showing as a king, he is rooted and providing to those rewards, to those who obey, and to a just recompense to those who disobey. Oh, it's beautiful. Note here, as we are confessionalists, and we have a full subscription to the Westminster Confession in the Divine State in the Larger Catechism, by question number 45, how does Christ execute the office of a king? So, I want to bring these particular clauses to your attention. 
Christ executed the office of the king in calling out of the world a people to himself. If you know and remember from the parable, know how he speak as the good shepherd. It's very consistent here. What about this clause? In bestowing saving grace upon his elect. How about this clause? Rewarding their obedience. How about this clause? Correcting their sins. How about this one? Preserving and supporting them. The parable comes to mind here about the good shepherd and how he operates with his sheep. But note what he states about those who, after making the division, he entreated them. He restrains and overcomes the enemies. Why? Because he takes vengeance on the rest who do not know God and does not obey his gospel. Simple. Very simple. There's those who are obedient and there's those who are disobedient. And a division must come. The fact that he's able to make note to everyone who takes in and hear the word being preached and to decipher by spiritual discernment what is true and what is not. By your obedience, you show and write where you stand in the line of the sand. You show by which you're either a sheep or you're a goat. Now, I hope this light bulb has clicked, given that he has to fulfill this office in which he is king. And I noted that many commentaries have even tried to make the assertion with here and what we're going into with the verses 22 to 42, that Christ is trying to assert his deity. But before we approached it, and it's going to be in the next Lord's Day, I want to reiterate again. It's just more than asserting his deity. This is why he speaks in such a way and division occur because of his words. They don't think he's going to fulfill his duty. He has to fulfill it. You have to see him fulfill it at all ends. No matter what it is. That's why he can say the words and the way he say them. I lay down my life for the sheep and I'm the one who can bring it back. Who else can say that and fulfill it? If I go to the cemetery, people lay their lives down, but I haven't seen them come back. That's the harmony. The assertion of the deity, all fine and great. It goes, the rabbit hole goes deeper than that. He has to come to fulfill a role. And by verses 22, and in particular, verses 22 to 42, you're going to see him make that argument. Even when they ask him plainly, you tell us you are the Christ. That wasn't the first instance, as we're going to see in chapter 10, that they asked this. Note here, because I brought to you chapter 18, I'm sorry, chapter 8, 12 to 20, in particular, 21 to 30. 
He could have stated it plainly to them. I am God. But he cannot deny. His answers have always been, I cannot deny oneness with the Father. Why? Because before the beginning of time, before you're even born, we decreed on how I was to come and fulfill a duty. And he's consistent. He's consistent. Always oneness with the Father because he's going to do what the Father's tasked him to do to its completion. This is why he takes to a title and he has been bestowed a name greater than anyone in human history. Because his name came with an office and a duty that only he can fulfill. It's the truth. It's the absolute truth. In fact, the scriptures ascribed him as the Messiah because he's the one who can only perform the duties entreated within the office. Prophet, priest, and king. <laughs> Note some of the people and interactions he have with them. Note this. By John 4.25, the Samaritan woman, she even stated, I know when the Messiah is supposed to come, the one who's called Christ. So she understands the individual who's supposed to take that office. When that one comes, he will declare all things to him, to us. She, He states to her, I am he with whom you are speaking with. What does she do upon hearing that he's made that declaration? She's run to tell everyone else. She doesn't operate like everyone else who was in chapter 10 who states this man is a demon. You don't see that. So what transpires? What transpires? When the Samaritans come to Jesus, they were asking to stay, they're asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Why? Because the sheep know his voice. By verse 41, many more believed because of his word. The sheep knows his voice. And note, note how they even make it in the declarative. It is no longer because of what you said we believed. For we've heard it for ourselves. We heard him speak for ourselves and know that this is the one who's come to be the savior of the world. They did not say he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? It shows proof. The shepherd was right in the parable. The sheep knows my voice. How about as we continue? Because remember, we're going to see in, uh, as we continue in chapter 22, they're going to say, why don't you just tell us plainly again that you're the Messiah? And he stated in chapter 8 by verse 25, 26, what have I been saying to you? Remember earlier I, I stated, what have I said to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who has sent me and the things which I have heard from him, these I speak to the world. Again. I'm showing you I have oneness with the Father. I am consistent in this whole entire diatribe I have had with you people. So, and to render to this, what he's decided to do, 
instead of wow going forward and just saying plainly he said you know what now i'm going to take you to the judgment seat because you see he notes that as they were trying to pit him against moses and i remember i brought to you when i was last here in the beginning of chapter 10 how that they were inconsistent in that manner the very fact that he's pinning and showing his oneness with the Father. In particular, especially in chapter 8, he even showed from the beginning, I've been trying to tell you from the start, was to show that if you look back at all the prophets from Abraham and his obedience in Genesis, through Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49, Moses spoke about me in Deuteronomy 18. To all the prophets in 2 Samuel 7, 12, Daniel 9, 24, Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 9, uh, verse 6, Micah 5, 2, Malachi 3, 1, and Zechariah 9, verse 9. Even David in Psalm 110, I have now come in the flesh. So all the discords that you have been hearing about me, I am here now, but the reason why you don't believe is because from the parable statement to here, you are not of my sheep. In fact, we're going to see further because what are you doing? Some is saying that he has a demon. Well, clearly this is consistent with those who are not the sheep to frame him. Do you remember John 5, 17 through 18? When they accused him, do you remember in John 5, 43, in John 6, verse 66, they rejected him. And then seeking to kill him, as we're going to see in the continuing in, 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 in the next passages with John uh, 10. This is not the first time they try to do it in John 7, 19, John 7, 25 to 26, and also verses 30 and 32. And even in John 8, verse 20. Why such a malice? Because you're not of my sheep. So at my behest of my glory, I do come to bring division because I came to save my sheep. And if you are not of mine, then everything I do say will provide discourse. It will provide disharmony. It will provide you with so much confusion because all these words and these parables were to make sure that those who claim to see, they do not see. He is consistent. I told you. It's amazing. People try to make the Messiah to be a liar. But really, in truth, we are the ones who don't understand him. He is the truth. He can't lie to you. In fact, to those, and the sheer fact that those who are blinded claiming even to see, they want their eyes open. He even told them in John 8, I will tell you when your eyes are open. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. But when that happens, it's too late. It's too late to repent. 
it's too late to accept me. Because if you thought that I was going to be delivered into your hands and you see me falter, the parables show, no, I laid down my life because I have a office to complete. And a duty within that office also required me, not only when I laid down my life, I must have it risen once again. Now, see the consistency here. The Messiah stated in John 9, 39, as it continues, For judgment I came in this world, so that those who do not see may see, as a Samaritan woman, as a Samaritan people. But then, those who say they see may become blind. As the Jews noted, and are going to see, first they saw it in John 8, and they're going to see it clearly as we continue through John 10. You know, the splitting, especially in the individuals, as the evangelist was making note, he showed, as it would to the reader, there might be two people of individuals that stated their answer. By verse 20, some were saying to the absolute hatred, and malice towards him, that he has a demon and he's an insane, why would you listen to him? But then others were saying, by verse 21, these are not the sayings of one who's demon-possessed. The demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, now can he? So at first, at face value, some might be wondering, well, then this might be the schism in which the Messiah is providing a division. And I tell to you, I said, well, let's hold on a pause there. And let's look a little bit deeper. Because they're not so much defending him. They're just trying to give him an opportunity so that he can defend himself. Because, again, humanists can also have compassion. Is this the first time we've seen such an instance? How about Nicodemus? Remember in John 7? By verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. They said to him, the officers... Why did you not bring him? The officer said, well, never has a man spoken like this. So the Pharisees didn't answer to the officers. You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees, as you see here, has believed in him, has he? Ho, 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 ho. All of a sudden, Nicodemus opens his mouth. Because remember, he visited the Messiah in John 3. No, no, how he tries to defend the Messiah. Our law does not judge a man unless it hears from him and knows what he is doing now, does he? That's exactly what they're doing in John 10 here. But note how they answered the Pharisees. Answered Nicodemus, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet has arised from Galilee. So now Nicodemus is that quiet. At an opportunity to defend the Messiah indicate that, yes, I do believe in him. Take to the same stance, the same fight, that a man who was not learned, who was blind from the time of his birth, was actually able to make a profession upon having his eyes open. He fought, even to the point of losing his parents. Oh, 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 oh. 
He made sure he knew on what side he wanted to be on, the sheeps or the goats. But it didn't become a revelation until the Messiah sought him and showed, I have come to give sight to those who are blind. And what's so telling, especially how he has been able to use his work on earth to show even the church today what we are to believe of him, is that you've heard this ad nauseum, nothing is impossible with God. Well, yeah, nothing is impossible with God. So if I tell you that he died and resurrected and now still lives, you should believe him. But if one says that and says, well, you're insane, you must be demon-possessed, what do you think the Messiah was trying to say when he spoke in Luke 12? Be prepared. There's going to be divisions because of me. I fulfilled the work. I need to do it because I wanted to do it for my sheep. I must get those who are lost. I must perform a duty that other hired hands could not do. I must fulfill the role because I carry a title. I am the Christ. And all those who predated me, and now as I come, I am the fulfillment of what they said. If you are mine, you would believe me. But because you aren't, you are still in your sins. Is that not what he stated when he stated it to the Pharisees? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you said, you said, we see your sin remains. Calvin makes something very interesting, especially in this acute note in regards to this particular division. And what made it so fascinating for me, not so much to segue this, because in past times and through various commentaries, they like to brunch, branch, or sorry, bunch, Verses 19 to 30 in one particular sermon. But what I did today was to show you in part, in part, that though our Lord and Savior to someone else might provide them confusion, might even give them a sense of indigestion. <laughs> Nonetheless, he is within his right. To speak as he speaks because he cannot lie. He tells the truth. And when he has worked in us, the spirit of the servant, the spirit of his spirit has been presided to us. We should be able to discern it and hear it when it's spoken. But I want to bring something interesting, especially how Calvin makes a note about this particular sense of division. Because you know, here, Calvin actually has two particular paragraphs, and I will provide them for the sake of time as we're coming to a close here as to what I want to bring your attention to. Calvin actually started and notes something pretty interesting, in particular of Christ's discourse, because he states it procured some of the disciples. But he's consistent here, and I'll read here what Calvin says. Christ's doctrine also has many adversaries. 
and hence arises the division. So much that they are split into parties who formerly appeared to look as one body of the church and they would even profess and consent that they worship God and Abraham and comply with the law of Moses. But Christ came forward and they began to differ on his account. If they had been sincere, Christ who shows the strongest bond of charity, he healed the blind man. He raised the lame man to walk. Just two. Just two instances, Calvin is making note here. And see the office in which all these things are gathered in. It would have not broken up there agreement. They would have seen, they would have understood. He's actually consistent with the law. And we're going to see that. But by the light of Christ's gospel, it exposes the hypocrisy of the many who, while they had but nothing but false and hypocritical pretense, boasted as if they were the people of God. It goes back to what Jesus was claiming before. Even I showed you when I was here with the beginning of chapter 10, as I show you how chapter 9 leads into chapter 10, the Pharisees were saying, we know the words of Moses. We are the disciples of Moses. As to what this man says and where he's from, we do not know. So then the Christ is saying here, well then, here's the parable. Where does this come from? And in particular, especially with Pastor Jason reiterating from Ezekiel 34, they should have seen this a long time ago. So, what's interesting, and like I said, I'm going to continue with Calvin's note here, but what's interesting is that it's that same wickedness that's even seen with the Pharisees. And not just the Pharisees, but even those who were considered to be laymen of the church of that day is what causes the division. Because through Christ's words and his character and what we can see in body and scripture, he is always meant to do the will of his father. In fact, <laughs> Calvin even makes an acute note of our churches even today. Remember in the beginning when I told you about all these denominations and how it's seen as something to the world and to the humanists and to the antinomian Christians? Well, note here. The wickedness of many then still is the reason why the division in the churches still remains. And why contentions are always kindled. Those who disturb the peace throw then blame on the reformed. In the particular, those who want to do the law of God. They call those individuals schematics. These are the people who's doing the schisms. Those who want to rightfully obey the word of their Lord under the banner of Christ. They say we're the ones who charged with uh, troubling the church. But note here what Calvin said, but the truth is, if we, as do they, yield submissively in all things to Christ and give support to the truth, we will never be able, we will never have divisions. There will be no need for divisions because we're of a one mind, 
as promised in the scriptures. But they utter a complaint, but they don't complain against us. Because when you are obedient to Christ, don't you ever hear, you're, you're one of those Bible-believing Christians. Oh, you're the one who reads the creeds. Oh, you believe on the Sabbath day? Oh, strict Sabbatarian. Remember all the pleasures and worries they pulled against us? No, they complained against Christ because as the sheep, you work in the spirit in which Christ has endued you to obey. That's what they're muttering against. And what's interesting as, as Calvin will continue here, they won't allow us to rest in the truth of God. And they even so much want Christ to be banished from all of his kingdom. So they should have no right to accuse us of the crime of being or having schisms. For they themselves should be the one charged with this grief. But how should we operate? We should be saddened because they claim, they claim to be Christians and yet by their words they're not. We should be grieved that the church is torn by divisions arising from among those who profess the same religion. But it is better, it is better that we remain obedient than to succumb to the mindset of those who have wicked thoughts against God. Consequently, when schisms arise, we ought to inquire who would revolt against God and run to his pure doctrine. That's what we should do. I'm here, I've been up here at plenty of times, and I showed you sometimes when you're looking at the scriptures, why these antinomian Christians and all these humanists will look and find these schisms. And I've worked very well intent to show you there is harmony. And this is not this is nothing to say so much as to give a credence to what the work I've done. It's more so that I can show you there is no schisms. They're not telling the truth. Any individual who comes to you and tell you there's a schism, they may have to check their Christianity. Because the Messiah would never lie because he is the Christ. He took on an office and he has to perform it. Now, all saying this, let's make sure we find the cure to their quote-unquote schism. Because remember, when I began, I said, look at uh, this discourse. He's supposed to be the Prince of Peace. He's supposed to provide harmony and peace unto all men. Note here in Ezekiel 34, how he is the peace to his people. As a shepherd, by verse number 12, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countrysides. 
I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture in the mountains and the heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land and they will feed in the rich pasture of the mountains. Note the consistency here. John 10, 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and I will be one shepherd on one flock. And now note here with Paul in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with the commands and the regulations. Note this clause, his purpose. His purpose was to create in himself one humanity out of the two, thus making peace. All this is cumulative in one particular saying, because even the angels give this worship. <laughs> Luke 2, verse 14, glory to God in all the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. That is a mic drop. That is to cure the schisms to those who would tell you there is one in the Bible. He came with a purpose. It is on us and our work as being Christians to understand what that meant. But if we come with the attitude, he does not lie. He is all truth. We will be not like the Jews who think he's insane. We will not be like the individuals who see when you're obeying the law of God, they persecute us and call us names. No, sir. No, ma'am. We will be obedient sheep because the sheep knows his voice. And for us who were Gentiles scattered, the promise was made. Here's the reason why we're sitting here today. Here's the reason why we're glorifying him. It is a show. He came and got his flock. And he fulfilled the purpose. Dividing the wall. Bringing two into one. To be one shepherd overall. Shall we now look to the Lord our God in prayer.